Hello and welcome to another episode of Transcontinental Overload. I'm Stephanie, your host, and I'm very excited to have another Stephanie on the show with me today. I'm talking to the wonderful Steph Fuccio, a fellow podcaster and a true global nomad. Steph was born in the US, but has spent the last 15 years of her life almost exclusively outside of her home country. She's lived in Argentina, Colombia, Taiwan, Japan, Malaysia, Vietnam, China and the UAE. And since January of this year, she's been based in Berlin, Germany. Little tip for the listeners, don't even try to keep up with her trajectory. We are talking about a lot of countries here and at times even Steph has uh, trouble keeping it all straight in her mind. Steph went back to the States twice during that time, once for a master's and once for a PhD program, but decided that she was much happier living and working outside of her home country. Steph is very active in the podcast world. Her podcast is called The Geopaths Podcast, which is split into a few subsections, including language and language learning, which is one of her main areas of expertise, but also things like books and even one about coffee. She also does lots of other things, which can all be found on her website, www.stephfuccio.com. The link, as ever, is in the show notes. I came across Steph while I was doing research for my own podcast, as her name kept popping up a lot. And so I took a look at her website. And when I read this, I knew I wanted to talk to her. If you've been touched by other cultures, then you know they change you and often become a part of you. Geopad's podcast started off as a project that focused on my own culturally blended soul and then evolved into talking to expats and sometimes immigrants about their unique between-culture lengths on the world. That really spoke to me and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do, share other people's stories. So it's my great pleasure to have her on here today and hear all about her life as a global nomad. Let's hear Steph's story. Hi, Steph. I'm so excited that you're here with me today. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Double step time. <laughs> Double step time, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm also very honored to have you on here today because I think, I mean, you're you're pretty active in the podcast world and um, your name popped up so many times when I did uh, research for my own podcast. So yeah, I'm very excited that you're here today. I'm so flattered. And let me tell you, my <laughs> online presence is only so big because I have a social media planner that like on the hour lets another post go out into the internet. I'm terrible at social media mm. and that kind of, that, all that. So I'm still learning. And so it's, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to learn. Oh yeah. Everybody says, oh, podcasting so easy. Just grab your phone, start recording and post it up into the cloud. And then as soon as you do that, the first time you learn the 500 other things that you could do to make it better to attract more people and to do all this stuff and it's it's a very slippery slope I really want to talk to you about your podcast but let's start out with who you are <laughs> so you basically you've been in uh South America in Asia and now you're in Europe and you are pretty much in the heart of Europe you're in Berlin I, am. I moved to the center of Europe only to be able to not travel around I know so you got there in <laughs> January thinking uh -huh. wow this is my great big adventure in Berlin is starting and you have all these ideas about what what you want to you know use this time for and yep. lo and behold you're locked up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it has been an ironic career. That must be very, uh, very difficult, really. I, I can't even imagine because it's when you're an expat and you um, you come to a new place, the the only thing that keeps you sane at the beginning really is to go out and explore and just get to know the place. So I can only imagine that that's very hard. But you are a seasoned expat, so... Um... Oh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's <laughs> been a challenge. I tell you what, I have tried to meditate and to do yoga a million mm-hmm. times in my life. And this is the only time it stuck because mm-hmm. I am so restless being at home. And I so yeah. like, I know, I know you get it because you just said it perfectly exploring is the way that you get is the way I get grounded it's the way I like the place it's the way I get to know a place it's the way I get to know a culture and it was just like (laughs) no not yet maybe not for a couple of years yeah so it was was really difficult yeah yeah I it's I've heard from a lot of people actually and and a lot of expats too that they they are trying to utilize their knowledge Mm -hmm. and their tools and all that but this time Mm -hmm. it's different because we, we are all used to being in this kind of limbo state and like not knowing and not knowing yet, not knowing a place yet, not knowing how long you'll be there, whether it's going to work out and all those kind of things. So we're kind of used to the uncertainty of things, but mm-hmm. I feel it's different this it's time. It's really different. And so for, for myself, a lot of my normal mechanisms that I use, if I feel something's getting too much um, and the things I normally do, don't work and like you said so all of a sudden you have to find new things yeah go to cafes and drink a lot of coffee doesn't work Mm -hmm. or at least didn't they just opened them up Mm -hmm. again uh go and and talk to a group of friends or create Mm -hmm. an event or a club or do something together with other people nope the only thing that that did transfer over because we lived right next to Tempelhof is that I could go walk for a long time. And that's what I did for the first month straight. I was doing like 20,000 steps every yeah, day. Fabulous. Just, just being outside. <laughs> Tell us how did your expat, um, your nom- nomadic global existence, how did it start? What made you all decide to leave the U.S.? I am from the U.S., but I do have immigrant parents. So the first time I was on a plane is when I was four. And... Um, Although we basically went to families, uh, like houses and things, it it did leave a certain painful awareness that there's other ways to do things. So I was kind of a precocious student because when teachers would say, this is how things are done, I'd be like, but not everywhere. And they would be like, what are you talking about, young person? Yeah. So where did your parents immigrate from? Uh, they're both from southern Italy. From my dad's from Naples, and my mother's from uh, Calabria. Calabria. Okay, yeah. so well, I, I kind of guessed from your surname. So, yes. do, you, do you speak any Italian? <laughs> nope. So, did your parents come over and they just didn't speak Italian with you, or they they were here way before they met each other and had mm-hmm. my siblings and and I, and they came over when uh, were they? <laughs> They came over when Italians were the other and when uh-huh. being Italian was the easiest way to be treated badly. Mm-hmm. So they wanted their kids, from what I understand, to not deal with any of that. So they yeah. raised us to be as American as possible, but they didn't know a lot of American customs. So they did some quirky stuff in addition to like the Italian stuff. They did some quirky stuff that they thought was American and wasn't mm-hmm. like, yeah. And my mom's family 
like her parents are from Albania. So she spoke Albanian with them. And my dad spoke Naples dialect. And so I don't know how they even understood each other, (laughs) to be honest with you. Now that I know a little bit about Italian, I'm like, how did they understand each other, let alone us? I don't know. Okay. Well, but I mean, at least I guess having parents who probably spoke, you you heard them speak another language or languages, Mm -hmm. that's planted the seed for travel early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so we, I went abroad a bunch as a child, a, a few times as a child. And then I got it in my head that after university, I was going to go work overseas immediately. But the companies that I wanted to work for did not agree with me. They wanted to wait to like to be executives in the companies like 10, 20 years in to go work overseas because I considered it a painful moment to go work abroad. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what? So I started... Uh, doing the oh-so not-so-legal thing of working in hostels and backpacking Mm -hmm. and just like Mm -hmm. doing some editing gigs and doing anything I could to fund myself while I would just explore. So that's where the European travel was. That's where all of the Central and South American travel was. That was just me either saving up and going or working along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I got really sick of visa runs and not having a set because I had all traveler friends and people would come and go too quickly and I'm like I would like people to be here more than two weeks so (laughs) so that's when I started to teach English and that was the beginning of me working Uh, and that was um, yeah that was in 2003 and in Taiwan and then I just I wanted to switch countries every year because I liked that for a very long time And so I lived in a few different countries, yeah. Okay, so um, what came after Taiwan? Where did you go after that first stint? <sighs> Taiwan was my first Asian place, and I was not prepared for a mega city, for pollution, for gray buildings. I was used to European beautiful mm-hmm. outward, stru- like outwardly beautiful structures. And so that's when I first went to South America, and I was going to write this amazing book. So I went to Argentina and I rented an apartment and this is so cliche. And I worked on that book and I never got any of it done. But I was there for three or four months. It was quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I did that. No, those are two places I haven't traveled to. I've never been to South America and I've never been to Asia except for uh, two weeks in Bali. Uh, so I always love to hear about it. A very, very different region. Yeah. Oh, it's it's amazing because that's where I ended up going back because the vast majority of English language teaching is in Asia. So mm-hmm. I ended up doing a CELTA course, so teaching adults um, mm-hmm. language and, or teaching them English. And so I did that in Hanoi, Vietnam, which I will always miss but never move back to. And, <laughs> and that's actually where I met my husband. And then we started moving countries a little bit slower. And then we lived in Malaysia and Japan and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Tell us more because that's, uh, it's to someone who hasn't moved as much uh, and experienced that many cultures, it's just, it's mind blowing. <laughs> so when you say you wouldn't want to move back to Vietnam, hmm. what is it? What was it about it that you, what ah, is it that you miss? Okay. I, I miss the, the people, the mm-hmm. food. I love the food in Northern Vietnam. It's, it's this interesting mix of like Vietnam, like it's hard to describe. It's it's got they've got a French influence, they've got uh, a Chinese influence, they've got like their own kind of special 
uh, cuisine and taste and flavors, but Northern, uh, Northern Vietnam has this beautiful array of flavors, whereas Southern Vietnam is closer to Thailand where they have more of the curries mm -hmm. and the fried stuff and it's, it's much more like that. But for Hanoi has a much wider range that includes some of that, but also has some really beautiful, lighter kind of foods. And I love the food and the coffee so much. Mm -hmm. And the people were just, they were just um, so, so extroverted and so funny. Like they could be angry at you one second for no reason and laughing the next. They could be like overcharging you 10 times and then laughing the next. Like as soon as you say, Kong Zulik, I'm not a tourist, they laugh and go, oh, okay, it's really this price. I mean, it's just, they were so, so there were, there were no barriers. They were just like, they would be as friendly as you would understand in whatever language you were trying to talk in. And I just found that so inviting. Um, but why I wouldn't go back is just the quality of life. Uh, the mm -hmm. pollution's getting worse as time goes on. And as much as it was fun to ride a motorbike without a helmet and see all of the traffic accidents happen around me, I'm a little more risk averse now. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I bet you're glad that you did it when you did it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Such a great place. You were in China for, for some sometime three as well, years yeah that was the most that's the place ironically that's where we moved from on january 1st <laughs> so everybody kept congratulating us the first few weeks of january oh you escaped oh, the you virus <laughs> we did not yeah but yeah we were there for no. three years in shanghai i said in my introduction that you uh, went back to the states uh, a couple of times to mm -hmm. for graduate school so you did a master's and yeah, tell us, tell us about that. So why, why did you decide to go back to the, to the States to do that? It was strictly a financial decision. At that point, um, I was married for a few years and we had hit career walls where unqualified people with paper degrees were getting the jobs we should have had. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, okay, I guess we have to do that. So we looked at some really amazing Australian universities that we wanted to go to. We got accepted to one that we really wanted to. And then they sent us the bill and they didn't do like in the U S they have like graduate assistantships where mm -hmm. as a master's or PhD student, you could be either partially funded or fully funded if you teach a few intro courses and they didn't do that in Australia <laughs> we had international student fees and we're like we can't go there <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was a straight financial decision mm -hmm. to go back to the US for it yep and uh, so you came back after how many years away <clears throat> oh at that point let's see because I went back to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam, a brief interlude in Colombia, because that makes sense. And then back oh. to Vietnam. Because I wanted to make sure I was like, I like Viet I like Hanoi, but I feel mm -hmm. like I need a little more spice and then I can make a decision. And um, yeah, so I went back after like three months, I went back for my second and third year. So I was almost in, in Vietnam for three years. And then we went to, so it was, we were in Vietnam. And then it's so bad that I always forget the trajectory. <laughs> um, I think it's, if you look at all the all the places, I, yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> and then we went to Japan. That was a three-month contract oh, yes. to figure out if we wanted to live there. And the answer was no, but thank you for the job. Um, mm -hmm. And then we went to Malaysia. And then we went to the UAE. So I'm thinking it was probably three or four, three, four or five years before between mm -hmm. the last time I was back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that was a lot. Wow. Yep. Well, um, well, we're going to talk about reverse culture shock, but let's circle back to that mm-hmm. one. Um, I'm going to make a mental note. Mm-hmm. What was it about Japan that didn't work and that made you not want to stay longer? Yeah, the first time was hard. The second mm-hmm. that we actually went back to that same job. This mm-hmm. is going to sound really weird, but like accidentally, most of the time, uh, we worked there five, t- five times total. The first time was intentional and the other times it just kind of fit between contracts. Um, so the, the second to fifth time, I loved it. Uh, we also were in different cities. Like the first time was in Tokyo where, I don't know if you've seen the YouTube videos of people be, literally being pushed with the stick into the metro. That's a daily existence. That's, just, that's not an exaggeration. That's um, my biggest nightmare. <laughs> it, was, it was not good. I got the air knocked out of me every day from people pushing in to be able to get on the metro. And every Thursday, like clockwork, I kid you not, I would cry on the train because I'm like, people shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't be yeah. treated like this. We shouldn't let ourselves be treated like this. I'm leaving in two and a half months, but this is normal. And I was just like, bah! And it's especially shocking because there's so such a politeness, such a... Mm-hmm an orderly, such a very looking out for people around you, uh, characteristic to Japan. It's not just a stereotype. It's a very, what people are thinking on the inside is a completely different creature as it is in most places, but people are very, Mm -hmm. very nice to each other, generally Mm -hmm. speaking. So when you get into the metro station, that's all over. (laughs) And then you shove, you run, you're like trying to get to your train on time, and then you push and you step on whoever you need to to get into that train to get to work on time. And it's just like culture shock within the same block. Because it's just like outside, everybody's like super nice. And then inside the station, it's just crazy. Yeah. All right, so that, that we've covered quite a few countries. Um, uh, let's do a quick um, let's do a quick fire question round. Um, Ooh, I'm just going to ask you a question, and you just say the first thing that um, comes to mind. So, all right. Um, well, you have just you have quite a lot to choose from. So, um, <laughs> what do you miss the most from all the countries that you've you've lived in? <laughs> One thing that you miss the most stationary stores i miss stationary <laughs> stores in asia any country in asia just giving northeast asia oh. southeast asia i'm good yeah i miss stationary stores i do not approve of stationary in germany i'm sorry people but oh no they're just the writing instruments are not good the staplers never work the folders they're not secure they're like confused children made them folders i don't quite understand them <laughs> That's so interesting. When we lived in California, we stumbled upon this Japanese uh, stationery store, and it was like my my kids and I loved yeah. it. And yeah. it wasn't. It was just outside of the mall, and we would just go just there because mm-hmm. it was so special. I still remember it. This is so funny that you're. What saying was that the name of it? Is. Ah, it's a Kinokuniya or Daiso's no. more of a. Uh, I think something with an store. M something with an M but it was it was wonderful and the, the people yeah. in there were so friendly and so lovely yeah and question two <laughs> yes what uh, so normally this question is what do you love the most about your new uh place but I think that's not fair because you haven't really <laughs> spent oh, that I have much an time there. I'm ready oh for you do one. okay yeah. oh well go go for it okay the quality of the food especially I am a grocery store fanatic 
-hmm. And I absolutely love how even the cheapest of anything is still ridiculously good. It, it feels healthy, fresh, like just everything's so ridiculously good. The taste is like elevated 20 times from what I'm used to. And I know I come from the land of Franco food, so it's not a high bar, but, <laughs> <laughs> but still yeah. I have, I have been in other countries, you know, mm -hmm. that also have pretty decent food regulations and things like that, that aren't as freaky, but there's something really, really that's being done right with the food here. So I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. So third question, um, was there anything that you thought you knew about a country? It's kind of the make me smart question. Mm. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> um, was there anything that you thought you knew about a country? Um, but now, you know, it's not true at all. Was there anything that really surprised you? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to get some hate for this one. It, it covers a few different countries, con uh, countries that rely or countries or places that rely on Confucius uh, principles. And mm -hmm. I thought that those, because the, the information that we receive in the U.S. most of the time about places that are based on Confucian principles is that people really look out for each other. They look out for everyone around them. And it's a very communal society is the phrase that is used over and over and over. It's we're individualistic, but they're communal, you know, all that kind of thing. What I didn't realize until I lived in a few of these places is that they are incredibly go out of their way to give their lung for anybody, but not everybody. It's anybody that's in their immediate circle, which includes friends, co-workers, classmates, those kinds of things. But you have to be in the circle for them to be protective and really, really helpful. It doesn't mean that people are necessarily mean to each other, but unless you have a connection to them, they're not necessarily going to be very friendly and helpful. And I was not prepared for that because I thought, well, you're supposed to be helping everybody or just you're supposed to be nice to everybody or I'm very confused right now because this doesn't fit what I thought I knew about your culture. <laughs> Yeah, so that was a bit of a shocker. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, you, you wouldn't think that. And I, I think a lot of cultures work like that. That that feels like what a lot of people do. But the way that it's talked about when people mm -hmm. have cultural conversations was what set me up for the, the disconnect. And so I yeah. was just like, I feel very lied to. <laughs> that's very interesting. Yeah, but it's also, it just shows how you don't really know you th you, sometimes you think you know things about um, places and people and cultures. And in fact, even if you, you speak the language and you learn about it and you read all the books, mm -hmm. but you can't really know a country until you've oh, lived there for a while. And for really sure, immersed yourself. for sure. And even having just said that, there are people who I'm sure would break that mold in every place that I learned that lesson. And there are the newer the younger generation might be behaving differently because they have more global exposure and so they might react more like what is considered an international mm -hmm. reaction to new people mm -hmm. in your life versus you're not in my circle yet kind of thing so it, it really oh gosh generalizations exist for a re stereotypes exist for a reason mm -hmm. but they can also be completely inaccurate mm -hmm. a moment later <laughs> so Absolutely. And it's so individual, the, the experience. And um, that's why it's it, we, accepting that it is different for everyone. My, my, one of my biggest kind of pet peeves is when people trash talk a country 
and um yeah and also it's it's just some countries don't suit us and some characteristics yeah. don't just don't agree with us and um exactly it's so hard to recommend places to people for that very reason absolutely yeah. the travel writer pico Iyer, who i love to death he had this, I don't even think it was meant to be a prominent thing in this piece that he wrote ages ago, but he talked about meeting a city. He likes to meet a city. He, he needs that first day alone with the city to get to know them before he does anything with anyone else. And I was like, oh, meet a city. That's how I feel. I, when I go love to a that. Place. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. do you feel, because I really feel enough, I've written about this before, but I really feel that I, some cities are, I really click with. And I yes. just have that, that kind of, the, and it's a, I can't even put yeah. my finger on it or anything. It might be a yeah. stunningly beautiful place, but it just doesn't give me the, the that feeling. And other places yeah. I go to and I'm like, I'm so happy here. This is really the vibe. <laughs> and it's, it yes. sounds so out there. It's so true. I feel exactly the same. And oftentimes I can tell within the first few hours, as long as I'm not too distracted by other activities. I can, if mm-hmm. I'm alone with the city, mm-hmm. I can tell within mm-hmm. the first few hours if we're gonna get, get along and if I'm gonna want to eventually move there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did that happen with Berlin as well? Because it, did you visit Berlin and feel like, oh, I could imagine living here before you moved? Oh, heck yeah. That's how it actually happened. We had a month long European vacation and my husband and I both had dreamed of moving to Spain at some point. So we're like, okay, we're going to spend three weeks in different parts of Spain. And then he's a big uh, history buff. So we're, we were then like, okay, we're going to be somewhere in Germany for a week. And we're like, ah, let's just do Berlin. There's enough historical stuff. It's a big city. So that'll make me happy because I love cities. And when we got to Berlin within the first day or two, we both looked at each other and said, you know, Spain was nice, but I feel like we could have done the whole month in Berlin or in oh, Germany. easily. There was a lot more that felt comfortable to us and interesting to us mm-hmm. in Germany than it did in Spain, which it, it blew us both away because we had literally dreamed about moving to Spain for forever. So yeah, so that's when we started to plan the move to Germany. <laughs> right the very very fragile move to Germany (laughs) that may not actually be a move we may just be here for a few months who knows that's just (laughs) yeah such a shame but yeah I guess it's life you just never know you just never know what's what's around the corner so um so when well, circling back to this is not an elegant transition. <laughs> I was like, how fine. can I do this? Um, so after a few years uh, living and teaching, um, mainly in, in Asia, but also in South America, you came back to the US to mm. do your master's. Yeah. And so that was, um, was that the first time that you were spending in the US for an extended period of time? Hmm. After all well, those years I, away? Um, when I... F- First, before I started teaching, when I was doing all of the backpacking stuff, I would come back, save money and go. So I would be in the US for maybe like six months at a time. But outside of that, once I started teaching, like from 2003 on, I would say, yeah, those were the the two time periods when I was back the most. Like the, it was almost two years each time. The master's was in Arizona and part of the PhD was in Iowa, which was enough culture shock. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like reverse culture shock. And wow, I didn't realize this state existed like this state was like this. Yeah. But that's that's the beauty of the states. I mean, I had uh, 
definitely had a culture shock moving from California to Texas. Oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, <laughs> good and bad. Yeah. Definitely good and bad. But uh, so when you move back and, and um, sort of re the, the reverse culture shock of going back to your home country yeah. is, I mean, that's something I think a lot of people just don't even expect or think about. So how was that for you? It was really hard. I mean, I expected that I had years of pop culture references that I couldn't understand. And I was always a cultural misfit growing up, so I didn't expect people to get me. But there were some things that I was just like, what's happening right now? Like I thought, because I was teaching freshmen in a university in Arizona, and I thought they were the sportiest people I've ever met. Literally 90% of them would walk in with the skimpiest tank tops and yoga pants and and I was just like, you guys do sports all the time. Little did I realize that the general casual dress code in the U.S. had gone from like jeans or fun, like funky clothes way over to just fitness gear, just mm -hmm. for walking around, not doing any mm -hmm. fitness. And I just felt so stupid. Mm -hmm. I was like, here I am thinking that like this classroom, they're just, they're, I, I should ask them some fitness questions. <laughs> they must be one of the best studios to go to. <laughs> just little things like that that I missed the transitions while it was gone you know yeah, yeah. And just <laughs> but it's it, and it's exactly that it's the it's the little things because I feel when you move away you still usually keep in touch with politics and things like that that go on but it's the little, little things uh, I always get thrown by how anglicized German has become Mm -hmm. over the last so over 20 years now that I haven't lived there and mm -hmm. um sometimes it just I it completely completely throws me what how people sound what people the language people use and the words and it, I just can't connect with that and it's a real yeah. I'm a trained translator so for me it's a it's really interesting to oh, see okay. how the yeah you know and things are it's acceptable to say certain things now that that I would have had I done that in my translation exam I would have been that would have been a mistake and now it's not yeah. and I find that really interesting um so so you kind of you felt you felt a little bit out of place but then you said you you always you were always a little kind of cultural misfit um yeah, yeah. so uh, it wasn't new but um so then you decided to to leave again was that after so after your master's you um where did you go after that <laughs> Uh, so I'm debating to tell you the truthful answer or the uh, massaged <laughs> answer. We'll go for truthful. We we spent um, we went to a country that we had wanted to go for a long time with a job that we had been courting for most of the time we were in that two year graduate program. And within a week of being there, we realized that the school was corrupt, the town was corrupt, and that they weren't ever really going to pay us, do our visas right. And oh my that God. the apartment was, they were giving the same apartments to single people as to couples, and you could barely turn around in it. And we just looked at each other and we're like, did we go to grad school for this? This is a step down from what we were doing, not a step up. So it was one of the few times that we actually left a situation. And where was this? And that's one of the times that we went back to Japan. <laughs> uh, we contacted the company and said, do you need anybody right now? And just so happened to, they were about to start a semester in one of their three month programs. And so we went back there and then we ended up, where did we go after that? 
is that when we went to China? That's when we went to China the first time and we went to Nanjing, China. For the history buffs, they'll know it as Nanking. Okay. But it's, it's just one of those cities of 8 million people in China that very few people are aware of. So populated. So populated. It's, yes, it's, those, those, those numbers are just mind-blowing, aren't they? I, I mean, did you at that point speak any um, Mandarin or what? No, that job was incredibly low paying, but we worked our asses off. So I did, mm -hmm. actually didn't have a chance to put my brain anywhere else. Like we were teaching academic writing and the course was very intensive. And the last six months we were there, we were applying for graduate school. So I was studying for the GRE, the graduate entrance exam, and I was doing a, um, I forget what it's called, an action study, I think is what it's called, on my students. So I was compiling all of the stuff with the writing that they were doing into a, a study to be my sample for the graduate mm -hmm. program, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So I had zero time to uh, play with language at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't until we were there the second time in Shanghai, this most recent time that I mm -hmm. approached Mandarin. <laughs> and how was that? Oh, God, I loved it. <laughs> I'm I'm still super far from fluent, but there is something about having done uh, having broke through with coding in the PhD program that we left that made it easier for me to approach the Chinese characters, the Hansa characters. Mm -hmm. There is something with that connection where I went from looking at the language like ah, I'll never understand you to kind of being inviting and like a puzzle. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it was yeah. really, it took me off guard because I had lived in Taiwan, I lived in Nanjing and I lived in Shanghai. And it was just when we lived like the first few mm -hmm. weeks in Shanghai, I noticed I was kind of looking at the, at the script mm -hmm. curiously for the first time. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> this mm -hmm. is bizarre. I still have a long way to go, but yeah. Do you, do you practice? Do you find a time to, um, to keep it up a little bit? Between the move and the lockdown, uh -huh. my brain has not been there. I have it tentatively scheduled to go back uh, mm -hmm. to studying Mandarin Chinese in June. So I'm mm -hmm. really hoping, because I'm craving it. There's a certain mm -hmm. mental itch, like I'm using graded readers now, which are very, like I think the one I was working on when we moved is maybe mm -hmm. five or 600 words into a story so you're just reading all in the characters and it's really mentally taxing and this is going to sound wow. weird in a really good way and it mm -hmm. just you leave like reading a page of that is just like the best mental itch ever and i missed that mm -hmm. but um but i just can't i don't have the uh the brain power for it right now so no and i guess you're also you're in germany right now and i guess there's some some german you need to pick up to just yeah pull. Yeah, um, I am taking German classes too. <laughs> I want to juggle both of them and the scripts mm -hmm. are so different and what I want from both of them are so different that I think had it not, not been for mm -hmm. that pesky thing of a global pandemic, I think I could have done it. But mm -hmm. I just, yeah. Yeah, that's not very conducive to language learning, being stuck at home. Okay, so um, the language and learning languages. So that's obviously one of your big... <laughs> big interests and that leads me to your podcast too because it's it's was that something or that got you into podcasting or what was it when you when you first started podcasting because you've been doing this for for a few years now three years 
three years. I think that's quite a while in, in podcast um, terms. <laughs> so what made you what made you decide to launch a podcast? Yeah, I left the PhD program wanting to still do the things I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I and I and I took a job in China that didn't take any of my mental ability and I was traveling around the country a lot so I was on planes and trains for the job and so I had a lot of quote-unquote free time and I my brain is on fire on trains and planes I love traveling and although it was exhausting I felt that I wanted something needy to do so I started studying Chinese and I somehow, I'm not sure how this happened, but I somehow started a YouTube channel about my Chinese language learning and a podcast on expatish stuff at the same Mm -hmm. time. And I had all this free time and I had like a really good phone. So I was like, I'll just make content everywhere I go. And so I just started recording a lot of stuff that I saw around me, not realizing it was in frequent language that was really hard to learn. And I did all kinds of things that were just completely nonsensical, but I had a lot of fun with the language as I was traveling around. And what happened is that somebody finally said to me, look, you gotta, you gotta talk to my friend, Bill. He's, he's learned, he's now reading science fiction in Chinese. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? All right, fine. I don't really want to do interviews. It's a lot of work. I need another microphone. This is a pain in the butt. But that doing that interview and the you know how it is doing a solo episode versus a a Mm -hmm. conversation it's such a different experience and i got hooked instantly so then the language stuff bled over onto the podcast and now we have a ridiculous amount of different kinds of shows language being one of them podcasting coffee because oh coffee i know i saw that on there that that's great and yeah Yeah, so i love that uh, and books and all kinds of things and Mm -hmm. yeah so we've got a lot of uh, variety on the on on the podcast so uh where can people find you where's all that uh where can you find all your projects centrally located uh stephfuccio.com s-t-e-p-h-f-u-c-c-i-o So Steph, I mean, listening to you and all the countries that you've lived in, and I mean, we didn't even have time to cover Colombia or the uh, the UAE uh, for that matter. But um, obviously, that's a, it's a very nomadic life. So you are a true global nomad. I think, <laughs> how do you feel this has changed you or shaped you as a person? And do you have any tips for people who want to do that or lead that that lifestyle and travel mm-hmm. a lot and work and yeah any tips yeah how has it shaped me it's made me less restless because I've been able to do the things I wanted to do go to the places I wanted to explore meet people from different areas and ask them silly questions about tiny things that are different between our cultures and so that's made me more curious but also less restless because I don't have tons of wondering I know some of them now Um, tips for people. I don't know how to answer that in our current state because part of me feels like I shouldn't even be recommending people to be expats now. I don't know. But if we, if we fast forward to an, uh, post, uh, vaccine COVID time, then my best bit of advice is to connect with people that have lived in the place you want to live or are living there now and make as many connections as you can online, find out as much as you can, but go before you lose your nerve. 
Mm -hmm. way too many people do too much research and then talk themselves out of it. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you just really need to make the leap. There's so much you can learn with even just, you know, this, even within the first few weeks of a new place that you can never learn online Mm -hmm. or from abroad or from somebody who just went. I mean, you just need to be in a place a lot of times. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think, I mean, luckily these days there is a lot of information online and there are a lot of expat groups or or yeah. even local groups. So if you have a mm-hmm. p- specific interest in something or a, a hobby that you really, you want to pursue, then there's so many ways to connect with people um, before you go. So yeah. yeah. Great. Oh, and there's so many good expat podcasts now. It's, it's Yeah, it's, it's lovely. I know. <laughs> Hooray for podcasts. <laughs> Love <Hurrah> it. Podcasts. <laughs> so I'd like to finish my um, episodes usually with a, with a little um, personal story or a recipe or something. What do you do? Is there anything you do when you really miss something, whether it's food or a culture? Is there, are there any kind of things that, you, um, that help you <laughs> reconnect with that part of yourself? Okay, I just started cooking during um, during this lockdown, and <laughs> You're not um, the only one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, I have heated things up before, but I've actually yeah. used the spices that I bought, and mm-hmm. I use seasoning mixes, and I put stuff in the oven that wasn't sweet, mm-hmm. and you know that kind of thing. So the thing, <laughs> the food thing that I uh, bring from quote unquote Asian cultures, Northeast Asian culture specifically is a gooey egg on top of your noodles. And I will do this with anything. It doesn't matter if I'm making like ramen, Japanese ramen, or I'm making um, like any like Taiwanese noodle dish or Chinese noodle dish, it doesn't matter. I literally will take a plate of pasta and go, that's just not enough. And I'll make a gooey egg and I will put it on top and it'll be that extra beautiful sauce. Mm -hmm. And I will literally put an egg on top of anything often. (laughs) And when I see people eating noodles, by the way, and they don't have an egg on top, especially at Asian restaurants, I just walk past. I'm like, I'm not this eating it. This is not that. worth it. <laughs> this is not right. Or if the egg's too cooked and it has uh-huh. no gooey potentialness, I'm like, I don't care how good your noodle is. It's just not the same. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, and to be clear, the, the places where I got that habit, they don't put that gooey egg on everything. I've just <laughs> taken it from one dish and I just transfer it everywhere. So I don't want to make it sound like there's a gooey egg on every single Asian <laughs> dish in the world. That's not true. I just go overboard because I like it. So <laughs> speaking of noodles, I was, I think just two months into my, uh, my first Asian place. I was in Tainan, Taiwan, which is uh, just south of Kaohsiung in the central south. Mm-hmm. Southwest part of Taiwan. And I was in a shopping mall uh, food court, and it was one of the easier places to point and order food. So I point and ordered this beautiful noodle dish, and I couldn't even get my numbers with the right tone. So I was desperate. So I just pointed to a noodle dish, and it came, and I sat down, and it wasn't crowded, which is not common. And so I was really excited to have my space. I took out my books. I started reading. And this woman from a, literally across the, the very big food court came over with chopsticks with uh, her half egg in her chopsticks. 
and welcomed me to the city and said that I needed to eat better and put it in my noodles. <laughs> oh my God. So she basically gave me uh, her gooey egg. <laughs> and at, at first I was just like, okay, I don't know what's happening, but I'm at least going to wait till she walks away and turns around before I take it out. And then I'll decide what to do. But I was just like, I don't know if that's a compliment, but I think it was sweet. <laughs> it was just, it was, a, I mean, she, she had a smile on her face. She definitely was, you know, being, being friendly. I just didn't know what to do with somebody <laughs> kind of unexpected. In my food. Yeah. Walking across the food court. I'm like, it's oh. one thing if like your friend hands you like a bag of yeah. chips, but it, this is a stranger putting food in my food in a public place. I was a little bit taken aback. <laughs> Oh, so did you take it out once she was um, out of sight or was she watching you? <laughs> she was watching me. So I actually just ate it because, I mean, the soup was really hot. So I figured if there yeah. was anything bad, it probably got boiled off. Well, and it sounds like that created, uh, you know, uh, habits uh, from <laughs> right? what I hear. But it, it, it's so funny. Um, I had an experience in when I was, I think I was about seven months pregnant and we were in Greece. And we were staying at this very small hotel and everyone was fussing over me constantly. And I remember lying by the pool in, it was really hot. Um, and this woman, she came out and she had this plate that was brimming with fried fish, like mackerel, oh, no. mackerel, like oily fish. Mm. It's uh -huh. like deep fried. It was literally uh -huh. dripping and it was super hot. Okay. And she was, she was like, for the baby, for the baby. <laughs> and I have a thing with, I don't really, I'm not a big fan of oily fish. Yeah. Best of time, but being pregnant and hot and, mm -hmm. and she was there and she was watching me. She was like oh, expecting. No. And yeah. so I, my husband was laughing his head off. He was just like. <laughs> <laughs> you have to eat it now. <laughs> he just looked at me. He was like, "It's for the baby." <laughs> oh. And so yes, yeah, so I had to eat the fish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And I did. And yeah, that was that was probably a good preparation for for motherhood because yeah, the the things you do that you never think you can do or want to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Food generosity is great, but it it comes with a price. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, Steph, it's been really nice talking to you and um, comparing notes and, um, and yeah. It's so nice to have these conversations. Yeah. Thank you very much, Steph. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. Yes, yes, yes. So that's it from me for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think you can hear how much I enjoyed talking to Steph. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. I'm working on a few more episodes at the moment, including one that was recorded at the beginning of this year and that I still haven't finished editing. But fingers crossed, there will be a few more episodes out over the next few weeks. So stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also visit my website, transcontinentaloverload.com. It's being redesigned at the moment and will probably look a little bit different from what you used to, but... All that should also be finished within the next few weeks. I told you I'm a technophobe, so these things take me a while. I hope you are all well and haven't lost your mind yet or your sense of humor. 
it's a very tricky transition period right now i feel with um lockdown and shelter in place orders being lifted in various parts of the world and nobody really knows how to feel about that also summer is upon us and that's usually such a busy chaotic and exciting time of year and it's so strange because we we really can't make um plans or if we do make plans we're never sure whether it's the right thing especially when it comes to traveling and moving and i really feel for all those people who are planning a move and have to make a decision and uh, don't know what to do and all those people who just like steph have arrived in a new place but can't really go out and explore um and get to know their new their new country so yeah i feel for you and i'm sending a lot of positive thoughts out there but for now take care stay well and see you next time